0: this is reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd
1: hello hello
2: that's a very nice
1: mustard sweater if i may say so thank you very much i can see myself on zoom which it's been talked about a lot how with all these zoom conversations we're all having you're ultimately just looking at yourself. I'm not sure I like what I see today, Ed. I think my neck kind of vanishes a little bit. There's something about it that washes me out, but it's very kind of you to say, so I should have just taken the compliment
2: graciously. Talking of appearances, have you noticed that I've had a, I've had a haircut? I got hair shamed by the new leader of the Scottish Labour Party, Anna Sarwar, at our Shadow Cabinet. He said, I thought I had hair problems or, or, or long hair or something until I saw Ed. Um, and it was sort of true. I mean, it was I'd gone the full John Kerry and I was on my way to John Lennon. really, <laughs> uh, As in growing your hair for peace. I see it very much as a hair opportunity, not a hair problem. Anyway, so my wife stepped in and then I had a haircut and then I had another Zoom the next day and somebody said, you really need a haircut. So we then had to, she had to then sort of stage another intervention. And what was her creative vision or did you bring
1: uh, a photograph of somebody you were aspiring to look like? You.
2: <laughs> i think it was more that we were both hair cutter and hair cutty sort of standing on the edge of the abyss really <laughs> you know what i mean trying not to fall in you know trying not trying not to have a sort of like we'd had a fight i'd had a fight with a
1: lawnmower i would not want to introduce hairdressing into my marriage because how could you possibly
2: express anything other than than gratitude that was why we were standing on the edge of the abyss i mean my <laughs> uh my my children sort of were the spectators slash, you know, Greek chorus? <laughs> uh, uh, uh They did well, actually. They were sort of, you know, they were saying yeah, it looks better. They sort of b- broadly said the right things. Anyway, I think she did. She did really well, and I'm so cheerful because it's like spring. You know, it's is it the spring equinox? That this this that this comes out the March twenty first. Is that it the is, spring yes. equinox? Yes. I, I'm really into the spring equinox. As you know, I don't like that December 21st to March 21st period. I really don't. It's the worst bit, isn't it? It really is the worst bit. And, you know, the sort of getting dark at four o'clock and all of that thing and, you know, etc. So I think um, it's good. And my book has reached another stage of development. It's gone to the proof stage. So we're sort of nearly there. It'll hopefully be written by the time it comes out. Um, uh, (laughs) And uh, so... (laughs) So they, so there you go. So, Everything's so I know, coming I'm, up, Ed. I'm feeling – well, I wouldn't say that, but I'm feeling cheerful. Uh, what are we talking about this week? Well, talking about going big, Jeff, we're talking this week about the surprising, to some people, radicalism of Joe Biden. Earlier in March, the US Congress passed President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, which has been described as the most progressive legislative victory in the US for decades – The package is forecast to cut child poverty in half in the United States. We're asking whether this could be the start of a transformative presidency, and if so, what lessons it offers for those seeking big change around the world. First, we're talking to Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, the representative for Connecticut's third district in the House of Representatives, and this is a fantastic conversation. She spent nearly 20 years campaigning for an expansion of child tax credit, which was finally included in the relief package. We're asking her about the policy and why she thinks this is a moment for boldness then we're talking to Lindsay Owens, Executive Director of the Groundwork Collaborative and former Policy Director to Elizabeth Warren, about Joe Biden's wider economic agenda. And finally, we're joined by Professor Stephen Skaronik, who's studied presidents throughout history. We'll be asking him about his theory of political time and whether he thinks Joe Biden is likely to be what he describes as a transformative president. And our cheerful
1: person this week. Is going to be a preview of a longer conversation. Basically, we had one of the best-known, best-loved figures in the children's book world, Michael Rosen, um- booked in for a chat about his new book which is called many different kinds of love it's his battle and recovery from covid19 it's an extraordinary book we had this chat with him thinking it'd just be a five or ten minute thing for the podcast but he was so brilliant and we should have predicted this really that you need to hear it in full so we'll put it out as a bonus episode but there will be a preview of our conversation with michael rosen um in the cheerful person slot what's your reason to be cheerful we watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Eugene, which went quite well, but that's not why I mention it. The reason I mention it is, as we're watching it, Sarah says something to me, and I think she's right. She said, you should start dressing more like Charlie Bucket. Just tell us what how Charlie Bucket
2: dresses in mustard pullovers.
1: You know, I think he dresses in a very autumnal way, which is very much my season. A lot of browns, a lot of greens, occasionally a bold red. And um, I don't know if I should be disturbed that my wife wants me to start dressing more like a small child. But I did look and think, yeah, that's going to be my uh, lookbook for 2021. So that's my reason to be cheerful. What's yours? Well,
2: mine is really quite exciting. It's almost as good as yours, which is um, it comes from Birmingham baseball and basically The long and the short of it is that this is a Birmingham baseball team, the amateur community Birmingham Baseball Club, and they have asked me to throw out the season opening pitch at our newly community-renovated field. Wow! Wait, 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 wait. And what's more, they want to name the field after me now honestly, this just came in today, so we haven't replied to them. So if they hear this, I just want them to sort of know that we are going to reply. But I mean, I'd say that's pretty—that's a pretty big deal. I think you get to a certain age in
1: life, you start thinking about legacy. There is yours. There's the answer to the legacy question.
2: I mean, to be fair, they do. It's a pretty honest thing because it, it does also say, "I was an avid supporter of your Labour leadership. sort the Boston Red Sox," um, and it also. And also says, um, I honestly can't think. Oh, I, he's, to be fair, I thought he was going to say I can't think of anyone else who's a baseball fan. No, <laughs> I can't honestly think of anyone more apt than another long-suffering Red Sox fan. Isn't yeah. that nice? Yes, I mean that is the, the the subtext
1: of what he's saying. I can't think of anyone else who's a baseball fan. Have you have you got any anxiety about
2: throwing the first, What do they call it? Throwing the first mm-hmm. pitch? Yeah, like massive anxiety. I, I can't mean, see not, that will... going well for you no we'll, we'll take that bit under advisement but anyway they they sort of offered me some options for, for what the field could be called em park em field em sandlot or something similar I, d- I don't want to say this because i might break your heart
1: you don't think it's possible that you are the victim of a cruel practical joke here do you
2: it's possible
0: you're listening to reasons to be cheerful
1: with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd
2: So to talk first about the historic importance of President Biden's bill, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, who is representative for Connecticut's third district in the House of Representatives. She's she's held that post for 30 years. She's also chair of the very powerful House Appropriations Committee. Rosa, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. And look, I think I want to start by saying that our listeners won't be aware of this, but this has been a This bill is a historic bill in many ways, but it's historic in particular because of the campaign that you've led for nearly two decades around an expansion of the child tax credit. And maybe you can just start by explaining to our listeners uh, the historic measure that is included in the COVID relief package, what it actually is, and
0: why it's such a big step forward. I began this journey really uh, with, and I was sat on the budget committee in the House of Representatives and introduced uh, the amendment. That, uh, to expand the child tax credit because we've had a child tax credit. Uh, so I introduced that um, amendment. Um, we were not in the majority, so I lost on a party line vote, but subsequently year after year after year, uh, just continuing to introduce, um, the legislation for what it, 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 it can do and why it is historic, um, is that there was finally the recognition and I think some have to do uh, uh, with what this uh, pandemic has laid bare. What this will do and, and what we have done is to expand the current child uh, tax credit. Uh, it was that one third of our children were left out. Why? Because their families made too little money. These were the families of minimum wage workers who are mostly women. Families of veterans, rural families in our country, uh, families that had a large number of children—they were not captured. They were not part of it. For children from six to seventeen, will get a three thousand uh, dollar tax credit. Children six and under, it's thirty six hundred dollars. So, with a stroke of a pen, really, uh, it has been lifting more than a half of children and their families out of poverty in the United States. I'll make one more point about this. For me, historic, when I think about the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt, when we did Social Security in the United States, 90% of seniors were lifted out of poverty. This is the same scale. So it really is extraordinary of what's happened here. And and Rosa, I want to come on in a minute to the
2: historic campaign you've been running on this. But I think I'm right in saying also that it wasn't included in the original draft of the bill. Talk to us about that, and then you're meeting in the Oval Office with the
0: President. It was not, and and look, we've tried to get it. We tried to get it into the relief packages uh, that we have uh, uh, initiated, uh, and every time we were told, yes, well, we may be able to pass it in the House, we we can't pass it in the United States Senate. So when the first package on um, uh, that the rescue package, and by the way, the, the then candidate Biden had put. Um, the the legislation it's called the American family Act into his tax policy uh, as he was running for office, which was monumental so and then again being told even as late as December, Rosa. We can't get it in now. We will. We we have to look until after you, you you know after the election and where we can go. So when it was not in, and I got word on a weekend that it, it was it was not in. It was not re- released yet. I got on the phone and I did what you know you do. I, I lobbied. I spoke to uh, Ron Klain, the chief of staff. I spoke to the economist Jared Bernstein. Anyone you could talk to. Anyone you could find. Anyone I I could be in touch with. And all but within the inner circle of, of you know, the president's inner, in, inner circle. And um, they said to me, well, you know, let, 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 let's think about it. I said, we have to include it. And I did say to them, I've been promised over and over again, we win the House, we win the Senate, we have the White House, and damn it, excuse me, it's going to be uh, you know, we can do it. I said, now is the time we can do it. It's now on our watch. And I will tell you, honestly, within t- 24, 48 hours, they called me back with a willing partner and they said, it's in. It is in. And um, you asked about the Oval Office. And quite frankly, I had not been to the Oval Office for four years um, uh, so, uh, in any case, we're sitting there and, you know, you, you know, when you're in those settings, you think about what you're going to say and how you want to, you know, talk about what you want to do. So when it came around to me in terms of, I'd spoke about appropriations and what our direction, what well, I we wanted to look at there, but I was going to get in the issue of the child tax credit. And I noticed that both the president and the vice president were sitting under the portrait of Franklin Roosevelt. And I just said, Okay. You know, uh, and I said, Mr. President and Vice President, this is a legacy moment. This is historic. I said, you're sitting under this portrait. We know what Franklin Roosevelt did with the New Deal. We know what he did uh, with lifting seniors out of poverty. That is our opportunity now. At that time, the program was, you know, released uh, and I wanted just to make sure That there was an understanding of how critically important this was to stay in as the legislation moved from the House to the Senate and that it could not be tampered with, that it had to, uh, it had to remain. And, and he is, he is with all of us now of wanting to make it permanent because it is. It's for one
2: year at the moment, isn't it, Rosa? That's
0: right. But in answer to a question at our democratic retreat, uh, he said that, uh, you know, he wants to make it permanent. So it's going to happen. It is going to happen.
2: We can't overestimate the importance of this. And it's obviously very personal to you. Talk to us about when you first started campaigning on this and also how it relates to your background and, and your experiences as a child.
0: I'm from a, you know, blue collar family. My, my mother was a garment worker. She worked in what were the old sweatshops in the city of New Haven, uh, Connecticut. And my dad was an insurance, uh, salesman and they struggled financially for, uh, for all of their lives, my life growing, growing up. And, uh, one of the, one of the real memories I, I have is, We arrived home on one Friday night and we were uh, had been evicted and all of our furniture and our possessions uh, were on the sidewalk. And, um, you know, a searing um, memory. And we moved in with my grandmother uh, until we were able to get back on our feet. And uh, as I said, my my parents struggled financially uh, for most of their lives. My dad. You know, and they 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 struggled and they gave me the best of an education. Um, and I can recall my dad saying to me, if you work hard, if you study and you and you get an education, you'll be able to make ten thousand dollars a year. And you think about what circumstances that that they that that they were in. So for me, it was it's a reflection of the hard times. That families face, and and oftentimes people who are working hard, that they are on the edge, they can't make it, and their challenges that can be overwhelming. And we've see, seen this pandemic as being an overwhelming challenge in people's lives. So for me, really, my, my entire career uh, comes out of the, the those those struggles and the values that came from my home. You know, and those are the issues that I have taken up. And that's, you know, you, you've you've sat in the legislative body, parliamentary body. You, you know that we do have the ability to make serious changes and fundamental changes in people's lives. And I'll go back to my mom for a second, who was in politics, uh, 35 years on a city council. No one fiercer than my mom, you know. Uh, She was an equal opportunity antagonist to every (laughs) mayor of of, of Democrat or Republican in the city of New Haven. But she taught me a lot of things, but two things, never give up and don't take no for an answer. So those have, you know, have been real guides, especially in trying to get legislation, legislation uh, uh, through. And I learned this uh, from Senator Chris Dodd, who I worked for for nine years he dealt with family and medical leave, the ability for people to take time off when a child was sick or uh, you were uh, 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 someone in your family was ill. He introduced that legislation year after year after year for nine years and uh, never got discouraged. Um, It was vetoed by President Bush. Ultimately was the first uh, bill that uh, President Bill Clinton signed. So I learned about tenacity. Um, and so, sh- it shouldn't have taken 18 years, but it did. But you know, people change, circumstances change, country change, and you can make the difference. It's such an
1: inspiring story, just that it's it's been this part of your life and something you've been so passionate about for this long. On this podcast, we're all about optimism. Yes, given um, yeah, you know, given what you've seen happen and how inconceivable it would have seen not that long ago when you were campaigning for wow. it do you think and uh, there's a great quote from paul krugman do you, do you think he's right that the era of big government is over is over are we going to see a shift um in, in the wake of this relief package to the approach of government in supporting those who, who need it more than we've seen.
0: I, I, I believe that, Jeff, like you cannot believe. I don't have any bells or whistles or charts. But when you look at the where the benefits have gone in this rescue package, $1,400 in a direct payment to families, the extension of our unemployment benefits, $300 uh, for families, funding for state and local governments so that we can make sure that we have police and fire and teachers, education stabilization so we can get our kids back to school, food assistance, 12 million people in the United States are suffering from hunger Families in the U.S. cannot put food on their table because of what's happening. A childcare industry that is going under. And if you can't have a safe place for your child, you're not going back to work. So all of these benefits are skewed to working families, middle income families, low income families, the most vulnerable. So, I'm so excited about where we can go and what we can do with an administration who understands. And you know, our president, Joe Biden, who I know for a long time, he walks in people's shoes. He understands what people's lives are about. That's the basis on which he makes his decisions to move. My job now is to make it permanent. I'm going to move on to pass legislation I've been working on since 1997, equal pay for equal work for women, paid family and medical leave going forward, a national standard on paid sick days. So and, and the future of all of these things. And I'm very optimistic about all of them, Jeff.
2: Well, look, Rosa DeLauro, it's incredibly inspiring Be- beyond words. It's incredibly inspiring to uh, speak to you. More power to your elbow. Congratulations on your incredible campaign and the difference that you're making.
0: Thank you all again. And lots and lots of love. And I can't wait to get on a plane and fly to London. So thank you.
2: We're looking forward to it, Rosa. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. So to give us a sense of what this means, we're going to talk to Lindsay Owens, who is former policy director to Elizabeth Warren and executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative. Lindsay, hello.
3: Hi there. Delighted to be here.
1: It's great to have you. And before we get onto the COVID relief package, can you just tell me uh, wh- what is the Groundwork Collaborative?
3: Yeah, the Groundwork Collaborative is a relatively new organization devoted to advancing a progressive economic worldview. Uh, to counter the long prevailing conservative economic worldview um, that really set the stage for the devastation we're experiencing in the economy today.
1: Well, what I'd like to get from you before before we get started is just a sense of why this COVID package is a big deal.
3: I think there are two reasons why this COVID package is a big deal. Um, the first is that it's going to work. People are going to see it and feel it in their bank accounts, you know, at their kitchen tables. Um, and when they pay their bills at the end of the month. Um, We're going to see poverty decline substantially um, by over half for child poverty, by about 30% for overall poverty. Uh, And the black poverty rate is going to decline substantially by over a third, um, you know, bringing the white-black poverty rate gap down um, to levels we haven't seen in some time.
1: And tell us a bit more about how that's going to happen. What is in the package? And Maybe um, you could tell us a bit more about it.
3: So individuals earning up to 75000 and couples earning up to 150000 are going to get uh, direct payments of $1,400 per person. Um, they're also going to receive an additional $1,400 for each dependent child. Also a boost on unemployment insurance. So $300 a week in addition to... Um, the unemployment insurance folks already get through September 6th. Um, there's also a major expansion of a child allowance, um, which I know you've already talked to Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro about. Uh, also money for rental assistance, money to reopen schools. So it's it's very comprehensive.
1: And, you know, obviously, Joe Biden ran as a moderate uh, and, and yet he finds himself president during a, a pandemic and the recovery from that is, is obviously, uh, the, the big factor here, but. does it make you think that this could be the beginning of a transformative agenda? Could it be that shift you've been hoping for on the dominant ideas around government spending and welfare?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, my view and Groundwork's view is that this is certainly the beginning of a transformative agenda, but it really is just the beginning. We have been calling this bill in some ways a down payment, and that's for a couple of reasons. You know, the first is that we know we're going to need to do more. Um, and the second is that the the bill, while critical for bringing us out of the quagmire that we're in right now, um, really is designed to sort of like get us back to January of 2020. And our view is that the January 2020 economy is not the North Star here. Um, you know, there was a high poverty economy in the United States, a high inequality, particularly high racial inequality economy in the United States. And, um, you know, a truly transformative agenda is going to make investments for the long term that, quite literally, to quote the um, the president, build back better, right?
1: And do you think Joe Biden's administration get that?
3: I do, I do. I mean, I think the rescue package is, you know, the success of the rescue package is in part because, you know, folks on the outside, including, uh, well, folks on the inside and outside, <laughs> um, including, you know, President Biden himself, saw what happened with the Um, Great Recession and Congress not doing enough. You know, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was way too small. Um, It did not meet the moment. The result was a prolonged jobless recovery. And I think there was a real sense um, in his administration to, you know, to redirect and to not make that same mistake again.
2: What do you think, Lindsay, are the other litmus tests for you going forward of the kind of things you'd like to be seeing from the administration?
3: I want to see the Biden administration use every vehicle, appropriations packages, must pass vehicles as opportunities to move um, to move the progressive economic policy agenda forward, to create jobs and to invest um, in care infrastructure and in climate and all of the things that we're going to need over the next 20
2: years. And what about the $15 minimum wage? Because that's one thing that didn't make it in the end into the stimulus uh, bill it was in there, and then it got taken out for sort of uh reasons of procedure um, How much of a priority is that, and how gettable is that as a, a, a as a name
3: yeah, um, I mean the Democrats have to deliver the fifteen dollar minimum wage um, It has been a campaign promise now for I think two cycles at least, and actually it is doable. I think probably the most well there 's a couple of paths: one path would be um, elimination of the filibuster. Um, which is sort of feeling more and more likely in recent weeks. Um, the second path would be, you know, attaching it to a must-passed vehicle.
2: It is striking that compared to certainly when uh, President Obama was elected and, and even more so compared to when President Clinton was elected, Bill Clinton, the left in the democratic party feels a lot stronger uh, senator warren alexandra casio cortez bernie sanders a whole range of of people of whom those three are perhaps the most well known how important has that sort of left base been for kind of do you think for pulling the administration and how important will it be for pulling the administration in a progressive direction
3: Oh, I think absolutely essential. Um, you know, one, one thing that the Progressive Caucus, so I also worked for, um, the chair of the Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Um, you know, if they were to oppose, you know, signature legislation of the president, the bill would go down. Um, and so that's real leverage. And I think that they use that leverage effectively in this last package to keep, um, to keep the spending levels high.
2: I don't want to end before asking you about the climate agenda. The Green New Deal is an idea that was arguably born in the UK, but has been popularized in the United States. How hopeful are you that there's going to be something like Green New Deal, climate legislation passed at sufficient scale to really move the dial in terms of the United States?
3: There is absolutely going to be you know, some version of a green jobs program in the next um, legislative package. That was a pretty signature commitment of the administration. It's a focus of the left, and frankly, it's good economic policy. You know, young people who graduated during you know during this crisis and have no work history, they're going to need somewhere to start, and that's going to require federal investment in jobs, um, jobs programs, a job guarantee, green jobs, care jobs, um, you know, the whole gamut. So, I think you know, it's going to happen because it's the right thing to do on the economics and it's the right thing to do on climate. These vis be the green jobs.
2: Let me ask you one last question, which is, um, you're now, I, I can feel our listeners thinking, you know, we spent the last four years thinking, thank God we don't live in America with President Trump. And now they're thinking, okay, the progressive moment has arrived in uh, America in terms of its government and not so much in terms of the UK, where obviously the Prime Minister is Boris Johnson. Uh, give us some sort of vicarious hope here. I mean, what's what's your sort of what's your kind of advice? You know, thinking. I mean, you know, you're, you know, a year ago, you would have been probably incredibly sort of depressed about uh, where things were at. Um, what, what? How, just give us some reflections on that.
3: I do really think the hard organizing work um, by the left is paying off. Folks were really ready um, in this moment. As a result years of organizing that Groundwork did and, you know, including sort of ramping up in July saying, okay, we don't know what's going to happen in the election, but like, there's a decent chance that we're going to have the pen again. We're going to have the gavel again. And let's make sure that everybody is aligned and singing from the same hymnal on what we're going to need, how big we're going to need to go. And using this talking point that you're hearing in the U.S. all the time, which is, um, you know, we can't, we can't, uh, make the same mistakes of the great recession. Um, the risks of going too small are much greater than the risk of going too big. I mean, that is a talking point that was seeded, you know, over a six month period and that we heard all day long. Um, getting that organizing done, I think has really paid off. And I think we'll continue to in this, um, in this next, you know, six, eight months until we get to August recess and next year when the political calculus can change a bit.
2: Well, look, Lindsay Owens, um, it's great to talk to you. You've definitely uh, given us uh, very good grounds for optimism. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, to
2: talk about the background to this whole question of Joe Biden and his his place in history, if you like, i am delighted to say that we're joined by Stephen Skoronek, who is Professor of Political Science at Yale University, and author of a number of books on presidential politics, including Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic, the Deep State and the Unitary Executive, which has just been released. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us.
4: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Um, could you start, if, if you will, by giving us an overview of your theory of, of political time, as you call it?
4: Well, political time refers to dynamics of change that play out in presidential history over long periods of time. We tend to talk about the rise and fall of the New Deal political order or the liberal political order between the 1930s and the 1970s. And we speak of the rise of a conservative regime, uh, beginning with the Reagan revolution. But this goes way back in American political history. We talk about the rise and decline of the Jeffersonian order, which lasted for about 30 years. And that followed by the rise and decline by the establishment rise and decline of the Jacksonian order. uh these patterns that we observe in American president, uh, presidential and political history are anchored, that really reflections, artifacts, I think, of the peculiar structure of the American Constitution. We have this elaborate system of checks and balances that prioritizes stability and continuity, and it makes change very difficult to secure. So once a set of commitments takes hold, it's very difficult to dislodge them and secure something else. So the upshot is that presidents in sequence, one to the next, tend to drive this system uh, to characteristic flashpoints or pivot points. So where a long-established set of commitments of ideology and interest, of regime, becomes so overworked and out of touch with changes in the nation at large, that the regime just implodes. And that breakdown provides a rare opening to a wholesale reconstruction or transformation of American government and politics. What were the circumstances
2: in place, Stephen, that, or the key circumstances in place that enabled Franklin Roosevelt, for, for those of our listeners who don't know, who was elected in 1932, and Ronald Reagan, who was elected in 1980, to be the transformative presidents, do you think?
4: The key is the disintegration and implosion of the previously established regime under the pressures of the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover's demonstration that the old order was incapable of dealing with the problem. And during the economic crises of the 1970s, Carter's demonstration that the Democratic um, Party and the democratic regime, the old liberal regime, was not capable of dealing with these problems. That gave the opposition leader this authority to repudiate.
1: Does this oversimplify it? Because I, I, I'm the simple one on the podcast uh, here, Stephen. But if you, you take the idiom, cometh the hour, cometh the man, the hour is the more important part of that equation yeah. in, in your theory of political time.
4: yes. You look at these reconstructive presidents, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan, what do they have in common? It's not like they're more skillful than anybody else. It's not that they're more skillful. It's not that they have character traits in common. You can point to a set of character traits. What you can point to is that they all came to power in a similar circumstance, in a similar moment where a long dominant party had imploded and was held responsible for the crisis of legitimacy of the time, they came to power from the opposition party. And that was a unique opportunity to repudiate directly, forthrightly, categorically, the old order as just failed and bankrupt, and to begin to create something new.
2: Let's talk then about um, Joe Biden. Do you think that the conditions are in place for him to be a reconstructive president? And what would that mean?
4: Well, certainly many of the conditions are in place, but not all the conditions that you'd want to see in place. Certainly enough to consider the prospects for another fundamental reordering. So let's begin with Trump. The Trump presidency is was the fourth incarnation of this conservative order ushered in by the Reagan revolution. Trump came to power with an old Republican establishment already in disarray and uncertain of its message. The impact of that leadership on the Republican regime was implosive. Not only did he fail in his re-election bid, but he seems to have brought the Republican Party down with him. Now, is Biden the reconstructive leader? Well, Biden is a moderate, but he does have what seems to be a reconstructive movement at his back his history gives him a certain freedom of action. And all the while, he has this big source of reform energy behind him. I'm not saying that just because he's in the circumstance, he's going to reconstruct, right? right? It's just that only in these circumstances have we reconstructed.
1: So, something I often think about is, we we look at individuals in history and, and The change that happens when they're in positions of power, but then sometimes if we zoom out and we see what's going on in the wider world, there are all these similarities. How does your theory of political time sit alongside the idea of these other sort of wider pivot points in history?
2: Can I can I just follow up before you answer that, Stephen? Because I was thinking exactly the same thing. If if you think about, you know, your your theory seems to be grounded in America, but if you think about Britain. You know, we had we didn't have Roosevelt in the 19, uh, Roosevelt in the 1930s, but we had the 1945 Labour government, who's our equivalent of Roosevelt. We didn't have Reagan; we had Thatcher in 1979, very similar time to to Reagan. Talk to us about that wider question that both Jeff and I are interested in.
4: There are certain things that I think you can find parallels to in other systems. Certainly, I mean Thatcher. People are always talking to me about Thatcher was a reconstructive leader, right? The same, similar. Um, uh, and relationships between predecessors and successors. so uh, Thatcher Thatcher successor being constrained by her legacy, right? I think that these things are these things, you can find parallels, but they tend to be sporadic. What's peculiar about the American system is this seems to be an ingrained, recurrent, regular pattern. That stretches over thirty-year spans on a kind of recurrent on a remarkably recurrent basis. I mean, I I wrote this. I first wrote about this in the nineteen nineties, and I'm still I'm still uh, surprised myself at how the pattern just seems to hold. Right? I think this it this is a peculiar feature of the American constitutional system. Although I do think that this idea of reconstructive leadership does travel to other systems
2: and and how will you ultimately determine if this isn't an unfair question as to whether Biden has been a transformative president or not i mean i guess we should talk to you in 3 in a bit years but i mean what 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 would be your sort of what will be your benchmark of of whether he sort of meets the fdr reagan um sort of the bar if you like
4: I think that ultimately, fundamentally, reconstruction is a legitimation problem. The Biden has to make progressivism safe in the sense that moderates don't think that this is a revolution, right? That moderates think that this is an affirmation of first principles, a reaffirmation that, that the old order is fate was fatally flawed that it sold Americans' principles down the river, it is ultimately establishing the legitimacy of the progressive alternative, not simply implementing a bunch of progressive programs. I mean, even if Biden got less done and yet established that government is the solution to our problems, that would be a durable accomplishment.
1: So it should seem like a correction of course rather than a new direction.
4: Yes. So I think that to make Americans think that this is a correction, of course, rather than a revolution, that this is a restoration, right? And you hear Biden say this time and again when he keeps saying about the Trump administration, this is not who we are as America. This is not who we are. If he can make Americans think that who we are is a new progressive ordering, and that's who we've always been, that is the that is the accomplishment.
2: Is part of the test of this then, and forgive me if this is simplistic, is that Obamacare, for example, was and remains hotly contested by the Republicans. But if, for example, the child benefits that we talked about at the beginning of this episode become not just a one-year thing, but become permanent, and the Republicans accept them, that will be a sign that it's become almost what well, I think Thatcher uses phrase, the common sense of the age, you know, that it's become the common sense of the age, that that will be a symbol that this has now been accepted. Whereas, you know, the Republicans have fought bitterly against every part of President Obama's agenda.
4: The brilliance of the reconstructive leaders to establish a new political common sense. That's exactly right. I think that these the relief package, which has all sorts of transformative things within it, but most of the transformative things are short term and they have to be renewed. I, I would put the emphasis on this legitimation thing, as you say, establishing a new political common sense. I think that Biden is very acu- acutely attuned to that. And he, I think that he's trying his best to do it, <laughs> right? To say, this is, not, this is not a revolution. This is, this is who we are.
2: Uh, Well, look, Stephen, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Your new book is Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic, The Deep State and the Unitary Executive. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Well, thanks so much for having me. It was great.
2: So what do you think? Do you feel more cheerful? I certainly do.
4: Yeah, I'd not really given this
1: that much thought, given everything else that's been going on. But it's really exciting, isn't it? Especially when you think that Joe Biden seemed like the most middle-of-the-road unexciting but ultimately perhaps most electable candidate and then because of what Stephen calls the political time these major things are happening as a response and um, I mean I just really enjoyed the whole thing I loved Rosa I found her so inspiring
2: you want to move to New Haven so you can vote for Rosa don't you oh yeah I'd vote for Rosa I think what's so interesting isn't it is that Rosa's been you know toiling away for 18 years on this child benefit child tax credit idea and i think she said in an interview she didn't say it today but she said the moment found us and you know it's like you know people have been through these terrible times and you know suddenly her idea seemed like you know a a part of the solution i think it's really interesting i mean i think the other thing there's something lurking in my mind which is i didn't we didn't get a chance to get into this either but and it comes from our friends at Pod Save America, which is, um, you know, the Republicans aren't saying much about this American Rescue Act. I mean, they're not saying much about it, but it's got 70% popular support, including, I think, nearly a majority. I don't think it's quite a majority of Trump voters. and And it's quite popular. I mean, they're more interested in the fact that Six doctors' use books. The thing they talked about at the Conservative Political Action Conference was six doctors' use books have been taken off the shelves because the people in charge of the estate said they had sort of racist overtones. But you know, uh, it's like it is interesting, isn't it? That that you know, and, and steven sort of are saying to us, you need to build a new progressive constituency. And and I think okay, you can't say that one the support for one act seventy percent support, which I think has been growing by the way. Is is a new political constituency, but I have always been struck that I may have said this to you before that, you know, Trump won Florida, but 60% of people in Florida voted for a constitutional amendment for a $15 minimum wage. And I think that's what Biden is that's what he's found his way towards, at least in this bill.
1: Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast we're extremely excited to to talk to our cheerful person this week i'm excited because he's just this beloved poet writer performer broadcaster who has written an extraordinary memoir of his his battle and recovery from covid it's called many different kinds of love I think Ed, you are excited because of just how much credibility this is going
2: to give you with your sons. Definitely, he's he's he's, he's not just Michael Rosen; he's a meme. I'm going to try and do it, and I'll do it badly, but, but nice <laughs> is the basic is the well, we'll, that's we'll, the basic punchline to the meme. We'll, we'll get the critique from Michael. Yeah. Uh, hello, by the way,
1: Michael.
5: Yeah. Uh, hello, yes, I'm, I'm feeling very nice.
1: <laughs> are, are you a man or a meme at this point?
5: um I, that's a difficult one um i'm not quite sure man or meme it, it reminds me of sort of 1950s Both. adverts um yeah i think i'm probably a man but some in many places it does seem as if i am a meme the way i've said this word and it's on a poem of mine on uh the youtube channel that my son runs uh with my poems and stories and the way i say this word nice to the american ear it um, sounds like noise, so they write it out as N-O-I-C-E. You know, they think that a sort of London speech is a bit like Australian speech, and um, it tickles them, so they've created this meme of me saying nice as part of my poem. What always surprises me is, is these quite looming large teenagers coming up to me with their phones. Well, they hold up their things and say, just say nice, and they, they, they walk away from me, sort of weeping with delight that they've captured me in the street. Michael tell us what I mean
2: it's an incredibly moving book uh, I was weeping um, a lot while reading it what, what tell us what prompted you to uh, to write the? I mean obviously COVID and your experience prompted you to write it but why did you feel you wanted to write to, to write it down the experience you'd been through
5: and um, the, the very short answer to that, Ed, is that I'm a writer. So if you're a writer and you quite often do write about your personal experience and not purely, let's say, imaginary, imaginary and fictional things, is that writing is a sort of reflex. It's kind of something happens that matters and you feel you have to write it. I mean, I always tell children if I'm in schools, it's a bit like when you've got an itch and you scratch it and you have to scratch it. So... When I came home and I started to try and figure out what had happened and how it had happened and why it had happened, then my first reflex then in that mood was, oh, well, let's, let's write this down. So I had sort of three ways to write it down. One was scribbling notes on my phone and the little memo pad on the phone. Another one was just the old way, paper and pen. And then the third way, rushing over to the computer and bashing it out on there. So... Um, that's a relief as well. It's a, it, it feels like, right, I've expressed that. That thing that was bothering me, that that moment when I was in hospital and, and I didn't know what was going on and the nurse was standing at the end of the bed, I've captured that, I've, I've sorted that. So it's almost like taking a photograph and feeling pleased you've taken a photograph. That's what it feels a bit like.
2: The the thing that I, I said that I was weeping at the book and the thing that really moved me the most was the messages from the people looking after you. Um, I mean, that's the thing that really got me. Um, And the book is called Many Different Kinds of Love. I mean, talk to us about those messages. I, I wondered how those messages came about and just then how that relates to the title, I suppose.
5: So when you're in intensive care, you are essentially dead to the world. You're unconscious. You've been put into an induced coma. And in normal conditions, as opposed to COVID, a nurse is, is always there by your bed in case there's an emergency. And of course, they're also dealing with your bodily functions. Traditionally, uh, in an ICU ward, it's one nurse to one patient. But the time I was there, and in, in this in the ward in the Whittington Hospital in North London, there uh, it was one nurse to three beds, four beds, five sometimes. It was a ward that had um, it was due for eleven had room for eleven patients and was up to twenty four I think at the time I was there. So this nurse and nurses who are doing this work, one of the things that they're advised to do because it's so traumatic coming out of intensive care, is to keep what they call a patient diary. And so they basically write you a letter every morning after coming off the night shift saying how you were, how you are. And so we've put these in the book. These are the messages from
2: oh, I see from
5: the nurses. And it's thought, I mean, there's a rationale behind it, it's not just for fun, that it's so traumatic for many of us to come out of this situation that we can't make sense of it. And there is a way in which we never do, because I've lost April and May of 2020. It doesn't exist. So it only exists in the eyes and ears of other people who looked at me, the doctors and the nurses, not even Emma, my wife, saw me. And so in order to help us with the trauma of this weird event, then they give us this patient diary when we leave. And I've got it, and it's a treasure. And sometimes I don't dare look at it, to be quite honest, because it's so... Well, it it reminds me of the fact that people waited for me to be alive... And when it's my family, it does it. I'm thinking about it now. It just, it upsets me to think that they sat here night after night, day after day, not knowing what would happen to me. And they couldn't come and see me because of the COVID restrictions. And the nurses devoting such care and attention, the kind that only parents do, really, when you think about it. As parents, we know our kid's ill. Quick, let's give them some, give some paracetamol. Let's mop their brow. You know, let's stay up with them all night in case the fever gets worse. And they did that for me, these complete strangers. You know, we have the phrase kindness of strangers, but it, it's, it's beyond that. It's devotion, it's love, it's, it's duty, it's, it's all these things. It's professional, it's using their knowledge and their compassion. I mean, it's just so powerful. And, you know, to think that the government wants to, you know, want them to be grateful for 1%, it just makes me so angry. I just can't believe it. I mean, I've been on the receiving end of such care... Uh, that has of course saved my life but much more than that um and I, you know i find i do genuinely find that quite difficult to the, find the words to describe how i feel about that
2: well look michael we're so so happy that you are here and um you know have written this extraordinarily moving and and important uh, memoir thank you so much for joining us
1: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Geoff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. We are, and I really wanted to read this email. It comes from Patrick Costello, who says, Ed won't remember, but I met him at a meeting of the EPLP he attended as leader. Moved to write by Ed's story this week on the strangeness of feeling a connection to the 1860s after he was told of Bertrand Russell. Being dangled on John Stuart Mills' knee, I thought you might appreciate a similar story. My grandmother visited us in Brussels shortly before she died in 1996 to see our firstborn and her first great grandchild, Ishan. And showing him the photo of him as a baby in her lap, I told him the story she told me of being an East End communist in the 1930s and attending a demonstration of ageing Paris communards marching through Cable Street, 1870. The story
2: still sends historical shivers down my spine. I mean that is brilliant, honestly. I mean that is just yeah. but Look, maybe with becoming the, we'll become the place for historical connections. How far back can you go? Mm. Uh, that is a competition. If you've if you if you've got thoughts on that or other things, uh, you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. dot com. Um, I, I should sort of do a little update on running. I'm going to try and do some running this weekend. I haven't for a few weeks for a range of reasons. But um, Roger, who's my sort of appointed coach from canada has sort of literally just while we've been on air sent me a sort of encouraging email you're a good runner with a sub 50 10k lurking in the future and maybe a quicker 5k too rtbc has made me think serious about many things so i'm paying back by cheering you on to get back to the pavements if i my hetering bugs you never hesitate to let me know well i think it is i think that's that's what this fellowship is about i mean i need to seem to be the first cheerful fellow but uh anyway so i think i need to i need to be able to get back on the pounding the pavements don't i
1: yeah and and as the second cheerful fellow, I have had a couple of yeah. bits of advice on uh, on dealing with mice humanely that I'm oh, uh, following up on. One I've heard before is shoving wire wool into every little hole they get through. I forget who tweeted me about this the other day, but um, she said that. Basically, my the holes they can get through. If they're as big as a pencil sharpener, a mouse can squeeze its way through there. So that's a lot of wire wall. Uh, and then I've also got an, another good lead on Twitter about some very smelly soap.
2: Could, could you like maybe adopt the mouse? Make it a member of the family.
1: If it was just one, I would be fine. But I think uh, our formerly friendly solo mouse has now been joined by some aggressive soilers
2: and food stealers that's problematic i think we should report back next week on how all this goes i'm slightly worried i'm not going to meet the i'm not going to meet the running sort of um business but i'll do my best i'd like to thank our inspiring guests rosa delauro Lindsay owens and Stephen skoronek
1: and if you enjoyed that little chat with michael rosen there's a much bigger one for you keep an eye out on your podcast feed and you'll be able to hear the full unedited version i mean there'll be a bit of editing you know where we said hello to him and checked his microphone was working and checked we were recording but pretty much otherwise unedited version of that interview in your podcast feed soon emma caution produces our podcast all the guests and research are done by joel pierce Looking over his shoulder and encouraging him is Joe Kenyon. Also, hello to all our friends at Left Foot Forward. You seem to enjoy that hello. last weekend, so I thought I'd do Hello! Yeah, yeah um, I love you. Hello. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music James Deacon made the eye dance, and our artwork was designed by...
5: Henry
1: Cole. He's been here today. He's been gone tomorrow. And these have been reasons to be shifted.